are really making our way uh, through the book of 1 Peter in this series that is titled Exiles. And uh, we titled it that because that's what Peter says that we are as Christians who are living for Jesus in this broken world. This place, this world is uh, not our home. Our home is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom will not be fully realized until Jesus returns to uh, make all things new, as he promises to do. And so until then, naturally, uh, we will be encountering all of the difficulties and the uncomfortableness of not being able to fully rest, right? Because we're not yet at home. And, And one of those difficulties that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks is the reality of suffering. Suffering generally, but also as Peter is pinpointing here, the the suffering that we face as Christians simply for being Christians, right? Persecution, if you will. And last week, we we wrapped up chapter 3 by addressing the reality that um, our suffering is not something that that takes God by surprise, but that actually is part of his plan for us so that in the darkness that is created by suffering, we might shine all the brighter as followers of Jesus and hopefully draw others into the abundant life that we now now have in the gospel. And so this week, we're getting into chapter 4, and uh, we're going to get into another uh, key aspect of God's good design in the midst of our suffering. And so uh, let's go ahead and read this passage. We'll pray. And then we will talk about it. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but For the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge. The living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the way in the in the spirit the way that God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another Sunday morning to be together as the body of Christ to worship you, 
as we sing our songs of praise, rejoicing in the hope that you have given us in the gospel. And uh, also as we sit under your word, as it instructs us, encourages us, and corrects us if necessary. God, as we open back up to 1 Peter in just a moment, my prayer is simply that your spirit would work in our hearts as we continue the discussion on something that uh, a lot of us probably wouldn't have chosen to spend three or four weeks discussing, that is, suffering. And that you would strengthen our understanding and acceptance of the reality that you truly are working all things together for our good, even the hard and painful things. And that good that you are doing for us is not a mystery. You have outlined it clearly in Peter's words that we're looking at today. So Lord, would you help us to hear these things from you, store them up, meditate deeply on them, and then apply them as life presents the opportunity to do so. God, please be with me and help me to show myself and my teaching to be a worker approved, handling the words of your truth with no need to be ashamed. I pray uh, all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, in this physical world that we live in, uh, that God has created, life is filled with something called chemical reactions. You wake up in the morning and you uh, grind up coffee beans and uh, you run hot water through them in order to create a really important new substance, right, called coffee that you need for life, uh, well, that I need for life. I assume most of you adults do as well. Um, you, you put a, uh, a pan on a hot stovetop and you crack an egg into it, and that changes its composition so that you can eat it for breakfast. You uh, turn the key or you press the uh, start button ignition on your car and a mixture, you don't see this happen, but a mixture of fuel and air are sucked into the cylinders of your engine to be combusted by a spark over and over, and that generates energy for your vehicle to take you to work, right? You, you light a match that you throw into a pile of kindling and dry wood in order to start a bonfire in your backyard so your uh, kids can make some s'mores, right? All, all these things, these are just examples, all these things are, are so common that we really don't think about the fact that what is happening as we do them is science, right? But in fact, it is chemical reactions taking place uh, every day in order to do good and necessary things for living. And in these different everyday chemical reactions that I just mentioned, there is a common denominator in all of them, something that is necessary for all of them, them to happen. And that thing is heat. Heat. Heat is a necessary component of so many important chemical reactions in life. And oftentimes, uh, heat is the factor that initiates the reaction. Without heat, you'd be eating a gross breakfast followed by a walk to work because your egg would be raw. Your car would not start, right? Why do I bring this up? You're wondering. I can see the confused looks. Is this a sermon or a, 
new episode of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Uh, It's a sermon, I promise. Uh, I bring all of that up. The importance of chemical reactions in our daily lives and the necessity of heat for them to take place because from what Peter says in this first part of chapter 4, it can be concluded that suffering in the Christian life is like a kind of heat that when applied to us, chemically changes us in ways that are good and ordained by God. Okay, If you remember last week, we said that suffering in life will really cause us to do one of two things. Okay, When we suffer, we'll either begin to feel really sorry for ourselves and we'll selfishly shut down and go inward, or when we suffer, we will identify ourselves with Christ and his suffering for us, and we will joyfully endure for the sake of others who need to hear the good news of God's saving grace in the gospel from us. That's really the two directions we can go with suffering as believers. And this passage today is all about the latter of those two responses. This is why Peter begins by saying in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That is, as Jesus pushed through suffering in the flesh, For the ultimate goal of saving us, we too should push through suffering with the aim of living lives that please God and put the needs of others before our own. Okay, And then I would place before you today that for the remaining verses in this passage, that Peter is saying the process of trusting Christ through suffering, has a dual sanctifying effect in the life of a believer. Okay, The process of trusting Christ through suffering has a dual sanctifying effect in the life of a believer. That is, uh, as I started off by saying, suffering is like heat in a chemical reaction in our lives. When it's turned up, while suffering is often unpleasant, painful and difficult physically and or emotionally, it actually furthers the progress of sanctification in our lives. Now, sanctification is just a big uh, Bible word that means spiritual growth, okay? Sanctification is the progression of our spiritual maturity, After our conversion, it's the process. Sanctification is the progress, the process rather, of us becoming more like Christ. Okay? And so I say that suffering in the life of a believer, especially suffering persecution or mistreatment by the world for our faith in Christ, it has kind of this two pronged uh, maturing effect. And so let's look at our text to flush this out. We can essentially break this text in half. 
uh, and see the dual effect in the two halves. So first, let's read the, let's read the first half again. It says, uh, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Uh, With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So the first aspect of sanctification through suffering is mortification. Okay? That is, it deadens our desires for sin. Okay? That's what mortification is. It's a theological term for the process of putting sin to death. Okay? And Peter is saying... That when we determine to continue trusting Christ through suffering, it aids in the work of deadening our desires for sin. Okay? He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. In other words, it's it's not as though when we suffer, I want to be clear on this, it's not as though when we suffer, we become all of the sudden perfectly sinless. Okay? But uh, as one commentator puts it, when we are willing to endure suffering while continuing to trust that Jesus is good, And when our hope of eternity with him actually helps us to persevere in our faith through suffering, it becomes very evident that we have made a clean break with our previous life of sin. Okay, And we're now committed to living for the will of God instead. Okay, That's why the title of this sermon is suffering instead of sinning, okay? We, we were, all of us, we were in a dysfunctional relationship with sin. But we've broken up. We broke things off with sin. And we are in a healthy, life-giving relationship with Jesus now. And suffering helps to reveal that. Like, if our faith in Jesus is to the point that even suffering does not derail it, but actually strengthens it, then it will also naturally be true that sin has become much less appealing to us. Okay? Does that make sense? Someone who is willing to suffer 
for their faith in Jesus is going to be someone who's able to resist sin because the commitment level of faith that is required to navigate suffering with joy, that is a commitment level that is simultaneously done with sin. Done with sin. Okay? You tracking with that? Okay. Peter continues this line of reasoning by saying in verse 3, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So in other words, as Christians, we understand now something, okay? We, we understand that the reason that many of these sinful practices, okay, like drunkenness and debaucherous parties with sensuality and, and things like that, <clears throat> these kinds of sinful practices are often actually an attempt in the life of a non-believer to numb themselves from the difficulties of life, aren't they? Like a habitual practice of getting drunk that's really all about not feeling your feelings. That's what that's about, okay? And a habit of sexual promiscuity is about physical pleasure, yes, but behind that is often an ill-informed attempt to seek out other deeper and more meaningful things like affirmation or intimacy, things that will comfort you if even for a moment in a world that is mostly broken and challenging, okay? And so Peter is saying, church, we don't need those sinful practices anymore in order to help us cope with the difficulties of life. Many of us We've tried that, haven't we? Anybody else? We've tried that. We tried drunkenness and sensuality and lawlessness, and we came up empty. Though they promised to alleviate the pain and stress of life in a broken world, they did not deliver on that promise. Because sin never delivers on its promises. Sin never delivers on the promises that it makes. And so Peter says that when we suffer as Christians, because our suffering drives us like a nail deeper into our reliance on Jesus, it simultaneously drives us further away from sin, and it further exposes the futility of sin, okay? It exposes, suffering exposes the inability of sin to help us, 
Trusting Jesus through suffering brings us to a place where we can even more confidently say that we don't want sin because it's ineffective. It's ineffective at generating the comfort, satisfaction, and rest that our souls need. Only Jesus can give us that. (laughs) Only Jesus can give us that. And so by his grace, we are done with sin. As a point of application, maybe maybe some of us need to re-up on that commitment today. Jesus died for us so that we might die to sin positionally, but also practically, okay? Maybe you're a believer here today, and in the, in the midst of life's difficult moments, you still feel the, the tinge of temptation to go back to your old sinful ways of coping. Whether that's getting drunk, or looking at pornography, or mindlessly checking out for endless hours of playing video games or scrolling Instagram or going out to just spend more money on new stuff that you know that you don't need just to occupy your time or whatever. The gospel calls us to live the rest of our time in the flesh No longer for these human passions, but for the will of God. The sin that we indulged in in our old life before Christ, Peter says, that was sufficient experience with sin, friends. That was sufficient experience with sin. We don't need any new experiences with sin to see if it's, to just check back in and see if maybe it's beneficial now. Let me tell you, it's not. It's still not. You don't need sin to get through whatever trial or difficulty that you are struggling with. You need Jesus and the love, grace, mercy, and peace that only he can offer to you. That's what you need. Sin might offer you peace, but it's a deceitful bait and switch. It's only going to bring you more guilt and more shame. Okay. So, for those of us who need to, let's recommit ourselves to being done with sin today. Because we know it doesn't help. It only hurts. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 gives us a really helpful articulation of how to be done with sin. David already read it. He jumped the gun on that. That's all right, David. Let me just read it to you again as a refresher here. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I love this text because um, it refutes a saying that I really don't like. I know you guys really like it when I tell you cultural Christian sayings I don't like. So um, here's one. (laughs) Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Have you heard that one? Yeah. Now, I get what they're trying to say, right? They're trying to say that there are some people who like to appear very spiritual, but when it comes down to it, upon examination, their life is spiritually impotent. There's no fruit, right? All of their spirituality is theoretical. It never works itself out into any kind of tangible, earthly good. So I get the saying. The only problem with the saying is, well, the Bible, okay? (laughs) The Bible actually says that true heavenly-mindedness leads to earthly good. (laughs) True heavenly-mindedness leads to earthly good. That expression tries to imply that thinking and doing are somehow opposed to one another in our faith. But the Apostle Paul actually reinforces what the Apostle Peter has been saying for a while now, that those of us who think deeply on the gospel are the ones who will actually wind up being holy and doing good for others. Okay? And so in your notes today, I put a little diagram um, that hope, hopefully helps you to see that. It's a, uh, it's a cyclical diagram that begins with suffering. Okay, so really what I'm trying to say with this diagram and from, our, from our text is that suffering will, for Christians, cause them to have to rely upon their eternal hope. It, kind of, it forces us there. That's what suffering does. It, it forces us to have to rely upon our eternal hope, right? That, that, that is the promise of the gospel, salvation that's offered in Jesus that will be complete when he returns. That's heavenly-mindedness, okay? That's what heavenly-mindedness is. And we've already established that that kind of heavenly-mindedness will cause us to reject sin, Right? Right? Okay. That kind of heavenly mind is, well, just, I have to make sure, make sure you're still paying attention. Okay. We're, to reject sin. We're, like, we're not interested in dabbling in the short-sighted, sinful stupidity of the world anymore. We have Jesus now. Okay? And so whatever rebranded, repackaged versions of old sin that the world tries to sell, we say, no thanks, I don't want any, okay? And Peter says that when that happens, our old friends and acquaintances, well, they might be confused or surprised that we don't want to run with them anymore and that we're turned off by and totally unattracted to that way of living now. And 
That may even cause them to be upset with us and to speak poorly of us. But as we established last week, we're not offended by that. Okay? We're not offended by that because actually it causes us to, to feel sorry for them and to desire that the Lord might use us as gospel lights in the world to open their eyes to the hope that we have. As Christians, listen, guys, we should not be upset or offended by people who speak poorly of us, okay? Like, I I just feel confident saying that as a blanket statement, okay? Like, we should not be super upset or offended by anyone who speaks uh, poorly of us. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about that. You know, he says, don't be upset if someone speaks poorly of you because you know you're far worse than they know you are, right? (laughs) I love that. That's true. This past week, in a historic ruling, the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade and essentially said that abortion is not and never was a constitutional right. And there, there are now a lot of mean and nasty things that are being said about Christians and our worldview that they view as outdated and and oppressive. And I'm not here to speak about that right now. I'm just here to say, based on our text, church, we are not to give in to yelling back at them, either in person or on the internet. If you do it on the internet, that doesn't make it okay. All right, Because these people who are emotionally upset and screaming for something as terrible as abortion, they are not Christians, friends. They're not Christians. They need the gospel because they are going to stand accountable to God. And we don't want them to have to do that apart from Christ. We don't want that for them. Let's not give them any more reasons to do that. So as Christians, our our greatest aim, I know this is hard because we're Americans, but as, as Christians, our greatest aim is not to be treated fairly and kindly by the culture. Read the Bible. We're treated far more fairly and kindly in America than the Christians of the New New Testament were. But that's not our goal. Our great aim is not to be treated, treated kindly and fairly by the culture. And our greatest aim is not to prove to non believers that they're wrong. Our greatest aim is to get the gospel out to people who need it. Because everyone. Peter says this, everyone's going to die. That's the reality. Everyone's going to die. And everyone is going to be judged for how they lived, either by faith in Jesus or rebellion to Jesus. And our desire, church, our desire is to pull as many people as we can out of rebellion, and into faith. That's our aim, okay? That aim, again, flows out of our heavenly-mindedness, 
okay? And so here's the, we're still in that diagram, okay? If you're looking, we're still in the diagram. So here's the second piece of the dual sanctifying effect that comes as a result of our faithful endurance through suffering. The second part of the suffering-induced chemical reaction, if you will, first was mortification, the deadening of our desires for sin, and the second is vivification. That is, it provides an opportunity for serious growth in living as stewards of the grace we believe we've received. Okay. Mortification is the killing of sin in our lives, and vivification is walking in the newness of life that Christ provides for us. Okay, you see the two pieces there? So let's listen to the second half of our text again. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another, one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter starts out by saying, as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So essentially, don't let suffering force you into a victim mentality, but instead Harness your suffering as a source of spiritual energy to reject sin and to devote yourself to producing more earthly good. Okay, Here's Peter's reasoning on the second piece of it. He's saying, when we suffer, we are reminded by the discomfort of our suffering that this life is going to come to an end. Suffering reminds us of that hard reality, that all of our lives are going to come to an end. When my dad was senselessly killed several weeks ago, I asked the Lord what he was teaching me through this incredibly painful experience of suffering. And by his grace, though it has been hard, he has been teaching me a lot of things through it. But one of the most important is that life is really shorter than we realize Life is really shorter than we realize. We don't have time. We don't have the time we like to pretend we have. And so we should not put off doing until tomorrow what we know should be done today. Okay? This is what Peter means when he says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. He's saying the only step that is left in God's plan of redemption is the return of Christ. And that could come at any time. Could come at any time. And so when we experience suffering, our suffering is an opportunity for serious growth 
in living as stewards of the grace that we believe we have received. In other words, it's an opportunity to be jolted into considering if we are truly living out what we say we believe. Suffering is an opportunity for that. Okay. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Suffering is an opportunity for us to make sure that we are living in a self-controlled way, that we're not living carelessly or haphazardly, but that we are living on purpose for Christ and to ensure that our minds are sober, that our minds are not preoccupied and inebriated with stuff that doesn't matter, but that our minds are staying fixed on what does matter, and that as a result, our prayers are for the right things, okay? That our prayers are for the right things. I'm not, I'm not seeking to, to imply here that, you know, God ignores prayers that aren't for the right things. God certainly hears all of our prayers, but our prayers can be motivated the wrong way, and they can be about things that are not about the kingdom of God, Okay? And so when we become sober-minded as a result of suffering, it makes sure our prayers are lined up with the right things. I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing like death of someone that you dearly love to sober you up and remind you of what you should be praying for, for your own faithfulness and for the salvation of people that God has placed around you, right? In this way, by God's sovereignty, suffering is not an opportunity lost. Suffering is an opportunity gained. By God's sovereignty, suffering is not an opportunity lost. Suffering is an opportunity gained. It's an opportunity for serious spiritual growth as stewards of the grace that we have received in the gospel. And then Peter elaborates. He gives a a brief list of some of the most important things that we need to check on in our lives to make sure that we are focused So let's wrap up by talking about those. In verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So the first thing that suffering should prompt us to check our stewardship of is unconditional love. Okay? So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Are we loving one another the way that Christ has loved us? Are we loving one another the way that Christ has loved us in a way that covers over sin? What does that look like? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 13 is a great uh, place to look for what that looks like. It says, you know what it says. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Maybe we have that on our wall at home, but is that the kind of love that we actually have for one another? That's convicting to me. I don't know about you. 
This is the only kind of love that is going to cover over our inevitable sin against each other. Okay. So the questions are, is our faith in Jesus causing us to be more patient and kind? Or are we finding ourselves irritable and allowing resentment to build in our hearts and go unchecked, starting to keep a a Rolodex in our heart of people's wrongs? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Is our faith in Jesus causing us to be more humble and content? Or are we finding that we are envious of what others have or thinking of ourselves as superior to the people around us, leading us to be rude to them? Is our faith in Jesus causing us to reject the evil ways of the world and cling to the truth of the word? Or are we finding ourselves quite entertained by all the godlessness going on in our culture? We, we love scrolling TikTok. Are we content to not open the Bible for nourishment, but look to the world for entertainment instead? Is our faith in Jesus one that's digging deep, continuing to believe the best about people, staying hopeful in the gospel, and willing to endure challenges? Or are we allowing our hearts to get burnt out? and ready to give up on our difficult friends, give up on our marriage, or give up on our church family. Peter seems to be saying that suffering is a gracious reminder to check our hearts and see how our love is doing. Is it still earnest? <laughs> like the first day we started following Christ, is it still earnest like that? Is it still flowing from Jesus' love for us, the amazement we have in that? Or is it growing cold? And does it need to be reheated? Sometimes suffering is the uncomfortable heat source that we need to reignite the chemical reaction of unconditional love in our hearts for Jesus and for the people around us. The next thing Peter says in verse 9 is, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the question here is, are we practicing thankful hospitality? Do we love to get together with one another in our homes to eat and hang out together? Has that just become a box that we check begrudgingly when we're guilted into it? Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the reason that we are a church at Mosaic, the reason we're a church that strives to love being together in community is because the gospel is the divine hospitality of God where he welcomes us into his family by grace through faith alone. And so we believe that by looking to the New Testament church, we are to model Christ's hospitality to us by being hospitable to one another, not just doing it as 
our religious duty, but to be thankful that we have the opportunity to share our, our time and our dinner tables with one another. I know we're on a summer hiatus from officially meeting in community groups, but that doesn't mean that we have to have a hiatus from loving and being hospitable to one another. We can still be getting together to encourage one another and stay updated on how, we, how each other are doing. One way that folks, I'm appreciative say this has been a great, and been doing that for our family as they've been bringing us meals after my dad passed away. This has been a great means of hospitality to us when we've been in a sad season. So thank you, those of you who have done that. Again, suffering is an opportunity to assess how we're doing in this area. And finally, Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the last question is, are we committed to faithful service? Are we committed to faithful service? Are we thinking about how each and every one of us who claims to be a follower of Christ, we have been individually and uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ? And are we faithfully walking in that? You know, two years ago, when we were in the midst of the COVID lockdowns, I heard so many people, so many people say the same thing to me. It was great. I really loved hearing this from our church body. So many people said this. They said, man, we really took our ability to gather as the church for granted. And so we can't wait to get back together again. Maybe you were the one, one of the ones who verbalized that. Maybe you had that sentiment. Maybe you felt that reality. Friends, let's not forget that, first of all. Because Peter reminds us one of the main reasons that we are called to not neglect meeting with one another each week is so that we can use the gracious empowerment of God to serve one another in whatever ways that we can. Whether, I mean, these are just Sunday morning examples, but whether you're able to teach kids in our kids' ministry or greet people in the breezeway as they make their way into service or play an instrument in the worship band or help our services run smoothly in the production team. I know they would appreciate that if you, if you use your giftings to do that or help keep the body safe as a part of our security team or mow the church yard and do repairs around our building as part of our facilities team. <clears throat> God has intentionally given all of us, special giftings that are meant to be regularly used for the service of one another. 
This is unavoidable if you just read the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's that doing of earthly good again. You see that? We're still in the diagram. So are we earnestly loving one another? Are we being hospitable? Are we faithfully serving each other? From the context of this passage, Peter is saying that when we suffer, we are given a divine opportunity to examine ourselves and ensure that we are continuing to put sin to death and continuing to live as people who have really been changed by the gospel that we say we believe. That said, whether you're suffering currently or not, these are still good questions to be asking ourselves today. So I hope that you'll take this opportunity as I have to do that and to respond to whatever the Lord might be saying to you through his word today. Let's pray. Father, your grace is so good. God, I pray for myself and for the people in this room, whether we're suffering right now in some way or not, that we would believe that even the suffering that comes our way in life, God, you are sovereignly using it for our good. You're using it as a tool to shape us, to further sanctify us, to further help us live with the mind of Christ. Pray that we would believe that, God, that we would believe that in such a way that we're changed by it, that when suffering comes into our life, God, we don't go inward, we don't get selfish, we don't curl up in a dark hole and say, how could God do this to me? But that we would realize, God, that even in those dark, painful moments, God, you're using that suffering to grow us. It's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves and see how Serious growth, it's a check-in. How serious growth might need to take place in our hearts and in our lives. Pray that whether or not we're suffering today or not, we would do that as this opportunity is given from 1 Peter chapter 4. So we love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.